Well, remain standing. We're going to read the scripture in just a moment. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you. Trust that God's blessing and favor is in your marriage and that uh, you have means to celebrate uh, your covenant relationship today. Uh, we are in a series on marriage and family right now here at Union Chapel, and we have been taking as our text uh, last weekend this Genesis chapter 2. This is the book of beginnings, and Genesis 2 gives us God's definition of marriage for all people in all places for all time. It's God's best design, God's intent for marriage, and we're learning about those foundations. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 2. If not, we'll uh, project the words on the screen for you. These are the words of Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild beasts, the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, yes. <laughs> reading between the lines just a little. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now this is someone like me, only different. Ish means man, ish from the Hebrew, I-S-H. Isha means woman. So this is ish, like me, ah, only different, and Isha, she shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. May God inspire us today through this powerful story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. We asked the question last week, how can we effectively and redemptively talk about some of these hot topics in our culture right now with regard to abortion and marriage and sexual norms, that sort of thing. And one of the things I suggested last week is that when you understand your starting point or even the starting point of people who dis you disagree with in this conversation, you can best predict why people feel the way they do. So your starting point is key to understanding the positions people take on these subjects. It's, uh, it's another way of asking the question, what does it mean to be a human being? What is God's idea? What's God's design for being human? It's an important question, isn't it? Because it affects your sexuality, your pleasure, your truth-telling, your relationships, and so many other things. Uh, what you believe it means to be a human being will impact how you believe and how you practice your life. And and so it's important to answer these questions. Let me try to illustrate this way. If you get in a car and you intentionally run over somebody and take their life, you can't subsequently blame the car for that event. Are you following this? 
In other words, you can't take an instrument and use it for a purpose for which it was not made and then blame the maker for it. So when you take the subjects of human sexuality and marriage and sanctity of human life and we don't understand the purpose, we don't understand the original design, the original intent that God had for these things, then you can often make the wrong conclusions. If you don't get the Get the basics right, the foundations right. So the questions that are asked, is life sacred? And depending on your starting point, you'll either answer that one way or another. Is life sacred? In other words, is human life at its core intrinsically valuable? Not extrinsically valuable based on the conveyance that the state defines it to be, but intrinsically valuable. It's the question of absolutes, isn't it? Are there absolute issues that are realities in our world? Is there absolute truth? And there are people more and more in our culture who reject the whole idea of absolutes, especially with regard to morality and spirituality. But if you don't don't recognize that there are absolutes all around, much of the world in which we live have about it absolutes. Otherwise, you just have a one-ended stick. Everything becomes relative. Everything becomes random. And so absolutes become part of our lives. I heard this story. This is a true story of a lecturer at a university. And he uh, finished his lecture, took questions. There was a young intellectual, a student in the audience who wanted to ask him this question and challenge his notion that there are absolutes, any absolutes in the world. And so the lecturer asked the student this question. If I had a one-year-old baby lying in front of me, and in your presence, I took a butcher knife and carved the baby into pieces for my own pleasure, would you say I've done something bad? Now, that's a rather strong hypothetical question, isn't it? This illustration. But it makes the point because the young, quote, intellectual, and I put quotes around that, he paused and then he said, I wouldn't like what you did, but I can't say you had done something evil. And you say, wow, really? Wow, is that what you want? Is this what we're coming to? That there are no boundaries? There are no clearly defined barriers around faith and practice? No absolutes whatsoever? See, when you start with the premise that everything is of pragmatic value and not essential value, then you veer off into the distance with nothing remaining sacred anymore. Nothing sacred. There are no boundaries. There are no rules. There are no definitions. But let me just remind you that in this country, at least, we live according to the rule of law. These are the boundaries. And anyone who is honest with themselves and has the ability to do critical thinking will admit that our rules and our laws and our culture are the result of a foundation that comes from the Judeo-Christian ethic. Our constitution is based on on a Judeo-Christian ethic, and you can live in denial about that and try to rationalize your way from that, but if you're honest with yourself and with others, uh, you will admit that that's the foundation of our, our rules. And it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And the, the Ten Commandments really are the summary of these laws and these rules that keep us in check, that give us civilization, so that you just don't have the jungle floor the survival of the fittest, and one person dominating other persons. 
And so these laws are important to us, and the moral foundations of them, the absolutes from which they are based, are essential to our well-being, as it turns out. And I can just summarize for you the Ten Commandments. For example, the Ten Commandments suggest, with regard to the notion of anything being sacred anymore, they teach us that the body is sacred, that your life is sacred, that your possessions are sacred, that your marriage is sacred, that your word is sacred, your time is sacred, and so is your neighbor's. All of these things sacred. And so we learn that foundations are important, that understanding God's original intent, God's original design, will lay a foundation for the basis of our beliefs and our practices. Now what we've tried to do last week and now this is to define God's original intent for marriage. We learn in Genesis 2.24 this definition, which is God's best plan, God's design for marriage for all time. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, last week we learned that there's some leaving of things behind. There are parents in that relationship that have to be left behind. There are people, there are problems, there are places that have to be left behind. I knew it was a I knew it was meaningful because I've gotten a lot of feedback, especially from young people who are anticipating marriage, married and, and, um, and betrothed couples, engaged couples, who have said that was really helpful. And of course it is. And I hope it was also helpful for folks who are a little older and have been married for a while, perhaps challenging and hopefully uh, confirming to you. So today now we want to talk about the second aspect of this definition of marriage that God gives us, which is cleaving or uniting to your covenant spouse. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. How many of you remember when, when superglue first came on the market? Anyone? You're old enough to remember superglue? Some of you are too young to realize that there wasn't always superglue. We didn't always have superglue. I know this is shocking to you, but for some of us, we were raised in an era when the best glue you could get was like Elmer's glue. And you know, you took Elmer's glue and you spread it on some stuff, you put it together, and you waited for two or three days and hoped for the best, hoped it would hold. <laughs> but super glue came on the market and said one drop, which was, you know, we have no paradigm for one drop of glue. We got a whole bucket of glue that holds stuff together. But one drop, no, there's no paradigm for that. The, the, early, the early commercials that marketed superglue had a man on a hard hat, an industrial hat. Remember this? And they'd flattened the top of the hat, and then they, with one drop, affixed glued this guy's hat to the bottom of a steel I-beam. And so this guy is hanging onto his hat, and he's dangling off of this I-beam underneath it, and his feet are just kicking like that. And it was very impressive. One drop of superglue. But people doubted. People doubted that one drop could actually glue something so forcefully. <laughs> and so people were gluing their fingers together. They were gluing their hands together. If you work in a hospital emergency room, you could tell stories of other things being glued together. And so people would show up glue, stuck by super glue. There was one young girl, I heard this story, that with one drop she glued her lips together. When I heard that, I got a little tube and I keep it in my office for people who get unruly. Yeah. But this, this glue, this cleaving means to stick like super glue, irrevocably attached. 
The vow says in the marriage covenant, till death do us part. But we've changed that in today's world. We say until disappointment splits us up or different interests do us part or until someone better comes along. But he is to stick to her like glue, not to forsake her, not to abandon her, not to veer off in some other direction, but to adhere only to her. It implies an unbreakable bond. No matter how tough it gets, how hard it gets, you will always be there for her. Now, maybe you've heard this in conversation with other men. I've heard it, not only casually, but in professional settings as well. A man will say something like this. They will say, I didn't know she'd be like this before I married her. Well, no, she's not going to let you know about that, all that mess before you marry her, before, before she gets you. I didn't know she was going to look like this. Listen, she's not going to let you in on that before you're married. You know, those hair extensions, she's not going to take those off in front of you, those false eyelashes, you know, the, the Spanx bodysuits. Those aren't, not that I know anything about Spanx. I, A bunch of guys in the room right now are going, what's, what's a spank? <laughs> She's not going to let you see all that stuff. See, what the, what the Bible teaches us is that women, women need to know that they are secure. They need to know that they're the one. They need to know that, that a husband has left behind other relationships, other people, other places, other problems. And he is cleaving only to her. In the hierarchy of a woman's needs, the, the chief among them is her need to feel secure. And it's the husband's role to make that possible. I, uh, I uh, heard someone say that a man's expression of love to his wife is like, is like overloading an electrical circuit. And if you've ever seen an overloaded electrical circuit, you know that there's sparks and then there's smoke, and then there's fire. And, and all that stuff happens when the circuits get overloaded. And that's what, that's what a man's called to do. He's called to overload the woman's circus. Now, we have men in our world right now, they want, they want the smoke and the, and the sparks and the fire without the love. But one must precede the other. So that, so that when you wake up beside your covenant spouse in the morning, she needs to hear from you the words, I'm with you. I'm devoted to you. I love you. The phone needs to ring for her and to hear you say, I couldn't wait till I got home tonight to hear your voice. When you get home, she needs to hear you say that I, I almost burst waiting to get my loving arms around you. See, this is what causes the, over, the overload on the circuits <laughs> and fire to follow, sparks to fire, follow. But one must follow the other, not vice versa. So in Genesis 2.24, we see that cleave means to adhere with the, with the implication of intermingling. It is the setting in of the other. And to pull it apart means that some of your hand will come off with it. You attempt to separate the two and damage only results. And, and this is what happens in divorce. Divorce always creates damage, sometimes severe damage. It's why the phrase God hates divorce is in the Bible. It's in the Bible not because God hates people who suffer divorce, the damage of divorce. God hates divorce because it hurts people. God is against anything that damages and hurts people. 
And so God hates divorce, therefore, because it is a damaging thing. The concept of cleaving is a very powerful spiritual force. Very powerful. Therefore, there are some things to let go of, and there are some things to cling to. There are only two questions in a traditional marriage ceremony. Two questions. Will you and do you? The answers are, I will and I do. Do you take this man, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded spouse? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part? And the person says, I do. I do. That's a, that's a strong thing. That's a powerful covenant. And I want to remind you that, that, that good marriages, as a result of that, don't just happen. They don't just start and go well and end well all by themselves. This is, an, this is a, a covenantal idea that is the result of good choices made over time and not the result of chance. It is the result of commitment and not convenience. One of my mentors whom I admire very much, he said commitment in marriage is essential. But he said what I've discovered, the key to, to long-lasting and effective marriage is the choice I make to love my wife every day. And he said, look, there's a thousand reasons not to love your spouse in any given day. But he said, if you choose today to love her, if you choose today to love him, he said, a series of choices made over a long period of time will create a very strong marriage. And so marriage happens this way. So it's when the honeymoon's over that the choice of I do's kick in. It's after you've learned all these personality quirks that they have, all this odd behavior that you didn't know anything about ahead of time, the personality baggage everybody has it brings it in to marriage. So that leaves us then with these two commitments when it comes to the idea of cleaving, being united to your covenant spouse. It's on your outline. I, I want to help you fill in these blanks because these are the two points I want to make today. Therefore, these two commitments in marriage. Number one, we will never divorce. You need the word never. Now listen, you're... Your circumstances may be completely unique. What I'm saying right now, though, is for both husband and wife. Assuming you are together right now, assuming that you are married right now, this is the commitment you make. We will never divorce. That is, we'll close the escape hatch. We're throwing away the key. There's no way out of this. That's what cleaving means. You cannot get out of it. You cannot leave this covenant spouse of yours and remain the same person, not without damage. So listen to me. This may sound a little too strong for you. It may just sound a little bit over the top, too much hyperbole. But listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about the exceptions right now. We can all list exceptions to what I'm saying. I'll never divorce. There are exceptions to that. But that's for another sermon. I'm not talking about the exceptions today. I'm talking about you. If you are currently married, that this is the commitment you make. I will not divorce. I will never divorce. There is no way out. There is no escape hatch. There is no rationalization. You Remember, you said, I will. You said, I do. And so that is where you live. We will never divorce. Here's the second thing. We will do whatever it takes to make the marriage work. Whatever it takes. 
You'll spend as much time, you'll spend as much money, you'll spend as much effort as necessary to make your marriage work. Now listen, no one ever said it wouldn't take hard work to make your marriage work. If, if, if you thought that you would have a successful marriage without work, without effort, then you are naive. And if you've been naive about that, then smarten up. Because it takes work. It takes effort. It's not going to happen all by itself. One woman missed this point entirely. <laughs> she accompanied her sickly husband to the doctor's office for a checkup. Afterward, the doctor took the wife aside and said, unless you do the following things, your husband will surely die. Doctor went on to say, here's what you need to do. Every morning, make sure you serve him a healthy breakfast and meet him at home every day and serve him a well-balanced lunch. Also feed him a good hot meal each day. Don't overburden him with stressful conversation. Don't ask him to do household chores. Keep the house spotless so he's not exposed to any threatening germs. Just cater to his every whim. He's very fragile. And on the way home, the husband was filled with anxiety. He asked the wife, what did the doctor say? And she replied, he said, you're going to die. <laughs> How many of you saw that coming? You saw that coming. Yeah, that was, that's right. There. But don't you see it? This, this is the enemy's primary means of destroying you and destroying us as the people of God to attack our marriage, to attack our family. This is the devil's primary. This is how the devil wants to ruin your life and reduce your credibility. This is how the devil wants to take from you your influence, your God-designed destiny. This is how, God, how the devil wants to rob from you and steal from you your sense of purpose in the world. You are here for a reason. And the devil knows that if he can undermine and undercut and, and destroy your marriage and disrupt your family, that he can take from you, strip from you your potential as a person fully formed in the image of Jesus and influential for his sake. And it can be argued that all the social issues and all of the great challenges of our, of our society right now are directly related to the dysfunction that's currently occurring in our families, in our marriages. So many issues, so many concerns, such an epidemic of this, that, and the other, costing billions and billions of dollars, trying to correct and, 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 and lift up and, and support all of, this, all of this consequence from the destruction, disintegration of marriage and family. And it should be obvious to us as a Christian people that this is a primary focus of the enemy and his desire to disrupt and destroy us. And we need to see it. Let me remind you of an important analogy that marriage has to Christ's witness in the world. I want to put this statement on the screen for you so you can get it best. Marriage is the only earthly relationship that reflects Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. Let me just say it another way. There is no greater testimony of God's blessing, God's faithfulness, God's presence than the one provided by a healthy marriage. There is no higher calling in your life than the calling to maintain a strong marriage. Nothing is more important, nothing is more substantial, nothing is more significant than maintaining a strong marriage. I was traveling with a pastoral friend in Europe some years ago. We were in a train going across the Netherlands, and his wife was with him and a couple of other friends. Beth was not with me at the time. And my friend started telling me this story, and he was proud of this decision he'd made years ago. And he said when, 
when their first child was about to be born, his wife reported to him that it was time she was, having, she was in labor, having contractions, time to get to the hospital. And he said it was before church on Easter Sunday. Now, as he's telling this story, I could tell his demeanor and hers were completely different. And then he tells me this story with some, some joy in it, some pride in it. Like, you know, I did the right thing. And he was asking for my approval while her countenance was all deflated and, and, and hurt, hurtful and sour. And he said, so my wife told me, the baby's coming. So he said, I drove her to the hospital. I dropped her off and I went to church in order to lead worship on Easter Sunday. Now, if there's anyone in the room today who doesn't see what's wrong with this guy's line of thinking, call the counseling center, get an intake exam, and sign up for help because you have issues. I looked at him and I said, are you joking? He said, no, what do you mean? He said, you know, it was Easter Sunday. I I had a responsibility. I did the right thing. I said, no. I said, what is the matter with you? You did the wrong thing. What do you mean you dropped your wife off at the hospital while she's giving birth to your firstborn? And you're not there? Listen, it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. It It was incredible to me that I'm advocating for his wife when he should be the one advocating for his wife. The most important relationship you have is with your covenant marriage partner. Most important. There is no other relationship, not even close. You know, compared to this girl right here, you guys even aren't even on the screen. They don't even pop up on the screen. This should also be true with your own children. Your children should take a secondary role in your home. Too many children run people's homes. Children should, listen, children are just passing through. I had to remind our boys about this. Listen, you're just passing through. She was here before you got here. She'll be here after you guys are gone. The only reason you guys are allowed to stay here is because I'm such a good guy. (laughs) You have a roof, you have food, you have clothes because I'm nice. If I wasn't nice, I'd just kick your butts out because you're just passing through. You are guests in my home. This girl right here, she's my covenant partner. We're the family You just get to stay because we're nice. That's all. Have to keep this this priority straight. It's the highest call. Wait, but you preach the gospel. You you help people find God. This is this there couldn't be a higher calling than that. Oh yeah. Are you kidding? Preaching the gospel, it's not on the screen compared to taking care of that girl right there. Are you are you hearing this? A marriage without God is doomed. And so we say yes to Jesus. The Bible says that a three-chord strand is not easily broken. If you've got a man and a woman and you insert God in the middle of that relationship, now you have force and strength. You have resilience. You're not going to make it by yourself. To the degree that you invite Jesus into your lives and into your relationship is the degree that you will either succeed or fail. 
Joshua stood up in front of the nation. I mean, he's, he led millions of people, the Jewish nation. He was the successor to, to Moses. Joshua stands up and he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We'll get to you guys later. Right now we serve God. There's a cliche that's absolutely true. You may think it's, you may think it's uh, not as important as it is, but it's hugely truthful. The cliche is simply this. The family that prays together stays together. Forty years of pastoral ministry, I've never, I'm sure it's happened somewhere, but it's never happened in my case where a couple sitting in my office and they look at me and say, you know, we, we've sought God, we've invited God into our lives, we pray on a regular basis, but we just can't make it, we're going to get a divorce. Never heard it. Never heard it. People who get divorced, the first thing they do is they separate themselves from God and then they separate themselves from each other. But you don't stay close to Jesus and separate yourself from each other. It doesn't work that way. Because Jesus is the glue. He's the super glue in any relationship. The most important relationships. Marriage without God then is doomed. And the reason for that is because marriage is a God thought. God wrought. God bought. God designed. God preserved. God protected. God created institution. God only created two institutions in the world. One is the church and the other is the family. And we should pay very close attention to both. So here are the two rules in marriage. Here are the two rules. This is the definition and the rules. Rule number one, you've got to leave behind certain things. And number two, you have to cleave to your covenant partner. Leave and cleave. These are the two rules. Listen, if you don't like the rules, listen... If you don't like the rules, then don't get married. Don't get married. Just opt out of that. Because that's God's best plan. It was not good for Adam to be alone, so God blessed him with a woman. They lived together their entire lives. And let me just remind you that Adam and Eve went through some stuff. They experienced the fall when sin first entered the world. It was devastation. All kinds of consequences to that. They lived to see one of their sons murder another of their sons when Cain murdered Abel. How much stress, how much devastation would that cause to a marriage? But they stuck together and they lived for a long, long time. Beth and I will celebrate our 39th wedding anniversary this year, later this year. And we've been through some stuff. We've been through some hard times. Certainly difficult enough to dissolve a marriage. But we are still together. And I'm convinced the reason we're still together is because we both love Jesus. And we invite Him into our relationship and into our lives. And the other thing that I know about Beth is I know she will never leave me. Never. Not on the option list. It's not, it's, it's not considered. It's not thought about. It's not mentioned. And she also knows that I will never leave her. Separation, divorce, these are, not, these are not thoughts that we have. These aren't options to consider. These aren't even words that are spoken. Words have powerful force in a relationship. And we don't even utter the words. It never comes up. Now let me ask you a question. Would you want us to be any other way? Would you want us to be any other way? 
The answer is no. You, you like us this way, don't you? It's reassuring this way, isn't it? It's good to have modeled this way, right? Our pastor and his wife, they've been married almost 40 years. They'll never leave each other. I know they won't. They say it out loud. They love Jesus, and, and, they, and they, they, they're committed to one another. And it's reassuring, isn't it? You wouldn't want us to be any other way. Now, here's my, here's my push. We don't want you to be any other way either. We want you to be just the same way. You'll never leave the other. You're devoted to Jesus and one another. That's what makes it work. A few months ago, I got an email from a parishioner. He uh, referred to a friend of his named Greg Ratliff. And he wrote in his email, he was a vice president, Greg Ratliff, VP with Dale Carnegie, going around the world doing conferences for them. His wife, Nancy, he wrote, was full of life and a great hostess. We had several good times at their new home before we left for Muncie. Five years ago, Nancy was diagnosed with ALS and is now completely immobile, unable to communicate except for opening her eyes. Greg is an advocate for ALS, leading an annual fundraiser in his city. His faithfulness to his wife speaks volumes to me and sends me a weekly note from his blog. You're emphasizing the institution of marriage. I thought this might be something that might inspire. And so I'm reading now from Greg Ratliff's blog from just one year ago, Valentine's. And he said, we had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Red helium balloons, roses, silk sheets, pillowcases, and a really nice new pillow for her sweet head to rest on were my gifts. I bought her annual chocolate-covered strawberry and rubbed it on her tongue. I asked her if she was enjoying the taste, and it sure appeared that her eyes were attempting to say yes. When I read my poem to her, she cried. Some friends encouraged me to put the poem in the blog tonight. I don't know if it's appropriate to share or not, but here it is, and I want to share it with you. I want to put the words on the screen so you can follow along as I read it. I will always love you. I will always love you, sweetheart. When your beautiful hair turns powder white, I will love you. When the smooth softness of your youth has been replaced by the delicate pliability that only age brings, I will still love caressing your skin. When your face is teeming with lines from our shared smiles, when every tear you have shed has left its imprint on your face, I will treasure you all the more because I will know that I was fortunate enough to be the one to experience it with you. In those moments when we feel that we were unfairly chastened by life, we have to remember that there was always something we learned from it, something to let go of, and something to be thankful for. I'm so blessed to share my life with you, Nancy. I love you until the last, I will love you until the last breath leaves my body. When you are no longer at my side, my memories of our moments together will remain in my heart. There are two times that I look forward to being with you, now and forever. I love you, my Valentine. I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment, and the answer to the question is, I get it. And I hope that you'll say it out loud. Here's the question. You ready? You got it? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you that your word says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Lord, we know the miracle of marriage is that two people become one, a blending of two lives. And we say, what a wonderful and marvelous miracle this is. So God, give us perspective today. Give us grace. Give us a clear understanding of your original intent, your original design. And give us courage then to leave behind the things that hinder our covenants. And give us strength then to firmly grasp this great blessing of marriage. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. And everyone said, amen.